0: Welcome to Moments in Leadership. Today's episode is the inaugural launch of the Hot Wash. And the idea of this is to ask a panel of young leaders to discuss some of the previous episodes of Moments in Leadership. And joining me on this panel are six officers who all serve together as staff platoon commanders at the basic school. They are Virginia Brody, Steve Stevenson, Sean Dudley, Joe DiPaolo, Zach Queen, and Beau Plant. One more thing, we experienced some technical difficulties with the first 20 minutes of Virginia Brody's participation in the episode, so you won't hear her introduce herself or jump in until about the 15 or 20 minute mark. While we had a lot of different interesting conversations, one of the things that really stuck out to me was this conversation halfway through the episode where we talked about setting the conditions for efficiency and discovering the friction points that lead to those inefficiencies. One of the recent reviews that was left on Apple Podcast stated that the writer of the review was amazed at how much actual connection, actual connection there was between company level officers and what they thought should be happening and what the general officers who are guests on my podcast episodes also thought should be happening. And I agree. So that leaves the question, what's actually happening between these two groups of leaders? Where is the friction and what is happening between a general officer and then the captains down there at the company level? And it's noted that talking about these things is super easy, but what's really hard to do is apply all of these lessons. And in a conversation last week, someone who worked for General Mattis told me about one of their favorite quotes of his, which I've never read before. So I'm assuming this is relatively accurate, but he said one of the things about being a general is that you can be sure that you'll never get a bad meal or the truth. That's funny, but there's probably also some truth and jest there too. So maybe letting the captains talk about the friction in this forum will surface things that are as worthy of consideration by senior leaders as their episodes and advice are to the junior leaders. And I hope that this hot wash discussion helps point out some of the things that senior leaders possibly don't see on a day-to-day basis. Because their information and access to information is so filtered by other people and staff. Okay, at this point, I want to get moving along. And I want to thank the supporters that have been patient with me on my move over from Patreon to Supercast. Patreon is totally shut off now. And there will be no further billing on that site for those of you who are over there and didn't convert over. And for those of you who are looking to support this project going forward, please be sure to check out www.mill.supercast.com. And I'll put that link in the show notes, obviously. But follow the instructions there and and however you can support would be great. And I'd love to see everyone who was over on Patreon come back over and sign up through the new Supercast site. Your contributions will keep moments in leadership sustainable, and I appreciate the growing membership of people who feel the project is valuable for emerging leaders. As for the hot wash level, what I've decided to do here was that as I record new episodes, I'm going to post them on the Supercast site exclusively for the hot wash level supporters. And then as some time goes on and I see that they get downloaded, I will then take that episode and upload it onto all of the other players for public access by everybody. And I decided that the project is too valuable to firewall episodes for subscribers only. So every single episode that... I record with guests will eventually be available for everyone, but I think that this is kind of a fair, fair thing. I'm going to keep experimenting with it since it's in my nature to always be searching for a better way. So if you have any ideas or suggestions for me, shoot them to my email address, which is themilloffice at gmail.com. And another way to get in touch with me is to just DM me over on my Instagram account, which is at themilloffice, also in the show notes. Finally, uh, if you like this project and it's not in your budget to support, you can always leave me a review on Apple or Spotify. We can leave me a review on Apple, and then you can rate it with the stars on Spotify. And like I said in the previous episode with Admiral Winnefeld, I'm watching the Apple reviews, and I'll pick one of the 30 reviews starting from October 1st. Uh, Use that as a start date, and I will pick one and give them a free hot wash membership. Right now, the count stands at 7, so there's still plenty of room to jump in there. My only ask is that you don't go in there and rate it with one star. Just email me some feedback. I'd rather see it like that. So for upcoming guests, I have First Sergeant Seamus Flynn, who is already recorded and in editing right now, so he'll be the next one that drops down. I just recorded Lieutenant Colonel Parate, who's the current commanding officer of HMLA 267, raw stingers, anytime, anywhere. That was recorded this week. I also have Marf Sergeant Major Ruiz recording next weekend, and I've made some traction with a female Navy 06 to come on hopefully soon. And I've got some other folks lined up too, which are which are kind of interesting. I'm still working on some more enlisted and I'm working on females. I know a lot of people ask me about getting a female leaders on here. I, I really am trying. People are just saying no, which is you know kind of a bummer, but I am working on that. So for those of you with contacts, please twist their arms or make me introductions. So with all of that, welcome to the first episode of The Hot Wash. We went back and forth. Uh- Trying to figure out what a great name was for this, and I just kind of went with Hot Wash because somebody got promoted. I didn't want to call it the Captain's Council or anything, and have anybody feel excluded. But today, I've got six great captains on with me today, and I'm going to let each one of them introduce themselves,
1: starting with Steve. Hey, everyone. So, um, Captain Steve Stevenson here. Came in the Marine Corps in 2004. I'm a South Jersey kid. Um, switched over. Used to be an old motor T operator. Turned logistics officer currently serving at Marine Corps Systems Command as a JLTV project officer.
0: And we got next up, Joe.
2: Good afternoon, I'm uh, Captain Joe DePaula from Annapolis, Maryland. I'm an infantry officer and I'm currently a student at the Expeditionary Warfare School here in Quantico, Virginia.
3: And next up, we got Sean. Hey, uh, Major Sean Dudley, uh, currently the Headquarters Company Commander and Supply Officer for Marine Air Control Group 38. And next up is Zach.
4: Hey everybody, I'm Captain Zach Queen. Um, Spent my fleet time in Tutu, came to TBS uh, early 2020. I've been an SPC a couple times, currently serving as the director of our Instructor Development Group at the Basic School.
0: Awesome. And
5: finally, Bo. got to save the soldier for last. Um, (laughs) I'm Bo Plant, a fellow Marylander with Joe. Uh, I was an 1803 assault amphibian, uh, joined the Marine Corps about nine years ago, and was an SPC with the rest of the crew here. And then Hopped over to the other side of the fence, and I'm an officer in the U.S. Army now.
0: Thanks everybody for introducing themselves. Um, Sean, specifically you, for correcting me that you're a major because I said we had uh, captains on. But uh, awesome. So you guys understand the intent of this, and and hopefully the listeners have heard me talk about this a little bit. But really want to start with just asking each one of you to talk a little bit about one of the one of the prior episodes that we've had, and and what what's your favorite episode, and what about it resonated with you as a as a leader?
4: Yeah. So I can start here. Um... So I listened to the General Furness episode pretty recently, uh, and, and I was a big fan. He doesn't know this, uh, nor would he remember this, but uh, I've met General Furness a couple times, once in Norway, when he was out visiting Trident Juncture in 2018, and I had my 81s you know, mortar firing position all set up. And he was an 81s platoon commander, and I knew that. So when he came up to inspect my position, you know, I was, I was very nervous, but we had a good conversation. I also was leaving 2nd Marine Division uh, in 2019, right around the time that the leadership and discipline stand down happened, the white letter dropped, and there was this big, uh, you know, social media outcry. Um, But I had the minority opinion at the time that I I was a huge fan of the leadership and discipline stand down. Uh, And to me, it seemed like stuff that we should be doing anyway. So uh, big General Furness fan. So I, I appreciate that episode.
0: You you are not alone being a General Furness fan. Every single person I've talked to says the same exact thing. And I, I had some conversations with him offline. He's a fantastic leader and, and, and I admire him as well. Joe, how about you? What what do you got for a favorite episode? Should we put you on the spot and, and make you say it was General Alfords or are you gonna,
2: <laughs> are you, are you gonna go? I mean obviously uh, obviously I'm biased after uh the last year serving as General Alford did, but obviously you know, the year I spent with him uh was instrumental in my development as a leader every day, even as a student at EWS, I find myself reflecting on the year I spent with him and some of the same things that he spoke about um, on your podcast. And I think uh, the key, or the number one thing that sticks out to me is he would always tell uh, you know, his colonels his that work for him, the number one important thing with leadership is to touch marine souls. And it's, it's difficult to do, and it requires a lot of sacrifice um, and a lot of time. Again, easier said than done, but we as leaders have to touch marine souls.
0: He's, he has commented on that on both episodes, and I know he truly believes it because he actually, he said it to me three times, even off episode. I think what you said there was, was really accurate because it, it does, it takes a lot of time to be able to touch the marine soul.
3: Sean, how about you? So I, I really uh, liked the Sergeant Major Black uh, episode. Uh and in particular because it uh it reminded me of some experiences I had uh as a second lieutenant uh with my first staff NCO, which uh was uh he's now retired, but uh Master Sergeant William Hess. Uh and he was really the one that, you know, kind of like taught me how to be in the fleet. Uh and it was a situation where, you know, I get to supply battalion and the CO's like, hey, welcome to supply battalion. We're gonna send you to R4OG. Uh you leave in three months go train some Marines. We went and uh, had a little discussion and he was, you know, trying to give me his uh, mentorship guidance and was saying, hey, you need to get your Marines PTP trained. And here I am like second lieutenant. Uh, Oh, yes, sir. You know, I'm going to, I'll get them PTP complete and we'll we'll get them out the door. And then I'm leaving the CO's office. I'm like, I don't even know what the hell PTP is. Uh, You know, like, well, I don't even know where to start, but Master Sergeant Hess, I went and found him and he just, he set me on the right path, you know, and he's like, hey, sir, I got you. This is my, my sixth uh, deployment. We'll make sure you do, get everything done the right way. Uh, and really was just set a great example of like how a staff and CO is supposed to mentor a young officer.
0: He and Sergeant Major Reynolds spent a lot of time talking about officer enlisted relationships. And I thought there was a lot of really great lessons in leadership there in both those episodes. And I, I had my version of a master on Hess. We could talk about him sometime, but uh, who do we still have left? We got uh, Steve. Yeah, Dave. So I, I, I'm gonna have to echo with Zach here.
1: I think General Furness is, well, first I'll say, I've taken a little bit of each out of each one of your, you know, your podcast and your guests, as especially when you have Lieutenant General Heckle, just a completely unvarnished approach to just telling you how it is. As he referred to himself as a blunt object, <laughs> you just don't get a lot of that at the general officer ranks. So it's just being real. But when when Lieutenant General Furn- or Furness specifically spoke about the recruiting challenges that we're facing today, and when he was talking about awards and some of the injustices that he's faced in his career, both in and out of combat. And we talk about changing policy. So both of those two episodes, challenging policy. I think that's a, a responsibility as leaders to to make our environment better for for our kind of our Marines to take care of them. Both of those episodes, I think, kind of ring true and kind of tie, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to challenging policy when we get done uh, going through everybody's favorite episode here. I think there's some there's some good nuggets there to uncover.
5: Bo? Yeah. So I think I'm going to have to side with Joe on this one. Obviously. I love Joe dearly. So, you know, his input input's always valuable to me. But really, it was General Alford. And I think it was the most recent episode where he was talking about peers being more important than your boss, and then your Marines being more important than your peers. That, to me, that kind of really struck because that's when you're at the company grade and and lieutenant level, and, and even below that, it being about the Marines, and it being about growing alongside your peers was really what it was all about for me. It's what I enjoyed the most, and the thought of a staff job would give you a little heartburn. But you always have those moments where you can interact with those Marines and approach leadership in that way. So that that one kind of struck a chord with me. But, but I was
1: specifically want to talk about, you know, when we talked about General Furness, when he said. That he has specifically heard people tell him that Marine does not rate said award based on his rank. The amount of times that I've encountered that. Yet we all say it's disgusting and we've progressed multiple decades and nothing's ever changing.
4: Yeah, so that's the thing is like when the three-star general says that and has no ability to influence it, you're just like who controls... Who has the lever to pull that can make this
2: change? I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you how it really works. It's it's the staff NCO and sergeant major of that command that's, that sits there and says, "Nope, doesn't rate it. Hasn't done this. Hasn't done X, Y, and Z, and that's it." Like in the half the time in general, I don't even see it. Yeah, that's a good point. You
1: know, it's, like, and it's being true keepers of the awards versus the awarding. And then the reflection of, well, I did a similar action, you know, eight, 10 years ago. I didn't get that. So why should they? It's a terrible way
2: to look at the situation. I mean, it even it happens as officers, right? Like you're you're a captain. You can't possibly get an MSM until you've had an NAVCOM.
3: You know, and it's uh, not just specifically the awards thing, but policy in general. As Marines, I think we have this reflexive requirement to Just, oh, yeah, well, I'm just going to – I'm not going to rock the boat. What a loser way to think. You know, that never wins in history, period. But we don't want to challenge policy because, like, we don't want to upset people or whatever –
0: so Joe, that was a really interesting statement that you made about that there's this friction somewhere at staff levels between the person who has the awarding authority, like a general officer, and probably whoever writes it up. So question for you, Joe, did, did you ever see a general officer downgrade an award on his desk? He must get awards and that he's signing off on. Did you ever come across a time where he said, hey, kick this back and downgrade it?
2: Absolutely not. I, I never saw it. And obviously I, I handled all of the administration going in and out of the the office. But most of the time, before it even gets to the general officer's level, it's been circumvented by three or four levels, specifically if we're just talking about awards alone. So somewhere down the process, I mean, back to Steve's point about General Furness's comments about the awards, whether in combat or outside of combat, it is not the general officer who's generally going to be the one saying, Saying no, it is somewhere up the chain of command that it's getting recommended uh to be downgraded.
1: Yeah, and you know, it, and and it's the time processing, right? You're talking if a ward needs to go to a one star level, it's got to go to a battalion awards board, regimental awards board. And it's just those are just layers of bureaucracy. While necessary on some levels, it's just time ticks away. And General Furness's point was that Marine's getting awarded the higher awards years later, but even something as simple as a comm, if you're not in a, a unit that rates to give those out, six months, seven months. And then that's ideally you get it to them before the Marine rotates, but how often have we all seen it where it gets mailed to a unit or mailed to their home of record?
0: I don't know how often I would see the awards leave. Somebody would write them up at my unit level and they would go up. i have never experienced being there when I got an award that somebody else wrote and be have to be somebody who puts the endorsement on it. But there's got to be some sort of level of friction. And I wonder if there's a, a further follow-on conversation to have here where the six of you could share some of your experiences or maybe some suggestions for how to fix an award system if you are indeed in that mid-level friction area of being the endorser going up to the actual comm- the awarding authority. Has anybody here ever been at a battalion awards board where you're, you're the endorsing unit and you're sending it up. Has anybody ever seen that?
4: So I've never personally seen that, um, but I, c- I can maybe highlight a story uh, that, that moves the ball downfield a little bit. And I think harkens back to something that General Furness spoke to. So he talked about you know, the experience of presenting the award in a timely manner. The Marines that actually saw the action, participated in the action, being there to see it and how meaningful that is. When I was in 81's platoon commander, uh, training in Camp Lejeune uh, on a live fire range, unrelated to training, uh, but we had a a near catastrophic car accident happen right off uh, the road to get onto the range. One of my NCOs, Corporal Geronimo, without hesitation, sprinted to this car, ripped the door open, cut the civilian out of her seat, and began rendering emergency aid. Saved her life, potentially, without really any hesitation. It was an incredible act. That day, no kidding, four hours later, uh, my battalion commander is in the field, Presenting this Marine with a medal, and my platoon is standing at attention. We got cami paint on, we got mortar rounds stacked up all over the place. But it was an incredibly meaningful experience because of the timeliness and because of the context and the situation. Where, And that's the moment where it truly struck me that we're not doing it right when we make Marines wait so long, which is why I think what General Furness said resonated so strongly with me because it's not clear to the Marines why it takes so long. It's not typically clear to the originator why it takes so long. So to your point, uh, perhaps it's at the endorser level where there's this friction.
0: So I've been in the field where impact NAMs could be given out during a desert fire X or something like that. And those, and those are great. You see a Marine get a, a Navy Achievement Medal right there on the gun line with his uniform all dirty and somebody's walking up and putting a Navy Achievement Medal on. That, that's special. And I think people really remember that but then if, if a platoon commander were to write up something for a Navy comm, and it's got to go above the battalion level, that's where you start to get all of this friction. I wonder what everybody's reaction to this statement is. Does anybody see any good in having the endorsing levels have to endorse when they actually don't even know the Marine? They don't know the circumstances, and they're literally just looking at a folder of paper.
1: Yeah, to your point, Dave, I I see no value added other than format like formatting corrections and spelling and grammar, which... You can get that at any level, whether you get it to an aide somewhere uh, or at the awarding authority level, any layer in between is just time wasted.
3: Yeah. So I actually, I'm, a, I'm at the uh, the group level right now and I'm on an awards board. So like I'm one of the voting members that, you know, goes into IAPS and clicks approve or, or not approve. Uh, and to Steve's point, a lot of it is like, hey, how well written is this? Because again, like I'm seeing all these names. I I don't know these Marines. There's you're, You weren't aware the Marine Air Control Group now has three MWSSs and the four Com Squadron, Mass Three, Third Lad. So you've got Marines all over the southeast. And I don't I don't know any of these Marines personally. I sometimes have not even heard their names. And so to Steve's point, like yeah, I'm I'm checking for writing ability, but that's not necessarily something that should be a a voting requirement if they were looking to change policy in some way.
4: So I think it's indicative of broader facet of the system, which is that Were we to disintermediate the people that are the endorsers, occasionally we would send up awards that probably weren't valid or or weren't, you know, didn't merit that award. And that would require some officers looking silly, which is something that the Marine Corps fundamentally struggles with accepting the fact that, hey, if we make this policy more efficient, occasionally we're going to break a couple eggs and we need to be okay with that, that drives people crazy. And, you know, the first time that doesn't work out, the first time there's an issue, Someone's going to say, "Hey, what are we going to do to make sure this never happens again?" Boom, a new check in the system, and then that that keeps propagating.
1: Yeah, I think to your point, I think you you mentioned it in the General Farnes episode about you know you know Pat Tillman and then kind of how all that played out with the investigation. I think that makes people gun shy to, to kind of write these awards. So I I still think there's a level of checks and balances at the unit level. So a young platoon commander goes to write an award. Somebody at that battalion should still get eyes on it, help him write it. Hey, is there enough meat in this? Does the Marine deserve more? That and meets the checks and balances. And I think from there, you do not pass go. You do not collect $300, skip the regiment. If it needs to go up to the general officer, it should just go straight there for, after it sees the battalion.
4: Right. And what I would call a common sense policy, you know, second Lieutenant Queen was not sending anything up that uh, right. was not like that <laughs> by the XO or by the first sergeant, right? So I, I think there's absolutely a common sense check in the system there at the company level to your point, Steve.
5: To kind of echo off Zach, You know there is something to be said about some checks and balances, but not only is it required for us as sometimes the award originators to understand the process, but also to communicate it down. I mean, you got to understand at the company level, what your sphere of influence is. And a lot of times, at least in my experience, Marines were understanding of what was occurring with their award, as long as they were being told what was going on with it as it progressed through these various bureaucratic levels. Um, And I think that If we are also better communicators down towards these Marines as to how it's going, you know, what the process it's going through, a lot of times that can alleviate a lot of the heartache that may start to generate at the lower levels as these awards get generated.
4: Yeah, but for some of the time spans we're talking about, two years, like I think General Furness cited a two-year example, you're gone at that point. We have a leadership turnover and, you know, who knows how that's getting communicated.
6: I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I feel like when we were looking to write up an impact Nairn, there would be times where people were like, oh, let's just save that until their end of tour. They're going to PCS in like a year. And like, we don't want to give them a second one. And I just, to me, always was like, well, why can't we give them two NAMs if they deserve it? Or why can't we give them another award? And I think we actually, I had one battery commander and he ended up writing. Or We like got approved two NAMs for the same Marine, and the Marine was very deserving each time. And I just thought it was, it felt very like wrong almost, but it was so awesome because he deserved it. But I felt almost like we shouldn't have been doing it. But then it was, again, it was almost like made up that we put those self-restrictions down. That's
1: a great point, Virginia, especially when you look at a battalion and they are they go on two different deployments, you know, a small, you know, 18 month, you know, in the middle there small continuity in leadership, but, you know, too many times we're like, well, that young sergeant did great on that last deployment, but hey, maybe I want to try to get him a Navy comm. So we're not going to write him for a NAM right now. And that's just the wrong answer.
6: Yeah.
0: There's something about us as Marines where we, where we look at the other services and we see, I'll just make up an example, an army specialist with an army commendation medal or two of them. And we think, oh, the other services, they give these things out like candy. And I think that impacts our culture and our thinking on, Virginia, exactly what you were saying, which was, hey, is it okay to give somebody two Nams inside of a 12-month period inside of a tour? And the answer that you said is like, yes, of course it is if they deserve it. But we also have this cultural thing about we don't want to look like all the other services who give them out a lot. Somewhere in the middle of those two things is the actual Marine who's doing a great job and should be recognized for what he's doing. And I know we have these things like the meritorious mass and the letter of accommodations and everything, but those suck. You know, you can't put them (laughs) on your your uniform at the birthday ball. You can't put them on your Charlies on a Friday. I mean, okay, great. But like, Virginia, to your point, you know, maybe it just requires a little bit more thinking and maybe some pushing on behalf of some leaders to just say, hey, this is about recognizing the Marine, doing what he or she did and getting them the award that they deserve and, you know, to hell with our cultural norms on this.
6: I know you mentioned this earlier, um, but I loved the like ITX example. Cause I remember after we did a battalion ITX and the battalion mandated, like you're going to nominate at least one person. Um, and then some of the battalion or some of the batteries ended up nominating one or two. And if we could justify it, like verbally to the commander, he approved it. And to me, that was just like, all you had to do right on a piece of right in the rain. And you're over there, like showing Marines that they worked hard and their hard work was acknowledged and deserved. And it was just it doesn't cost us anything. It's just such an easy win to thank everyone. Um,
1: that, that is such a valuable thing. You know, such a small thing is just, and you've mentioned in a couple of your episodes, Dave, about m- Marines need to feel validated and empowered and that they matter. And I think that is a huge piece to retention, which I know we're going to get on a little bit later. When, when, when somebody feels like they are valued in an organization, they will work themselves silly to try to meet the vision of that institution. But and conversely, as soon as they don't feel like they are being you know at least acknowledged or you know taken seriously, then they're just going to write it off and move on. Right.
4: So I do think there's one other side of the issue here though, which is I think everyone agrees on a few things. We agree that we want to prevent award inflation, right? We don't want to be the army. We agree that deserving marines should be rewarded more freely. I think I think we're on the same page there. But I think the other side of the coin is we also need to be culturally okay with underperforming or undeserving Marines not getting awarded. And yeah. I mean, I don't know when the last time any of us has seen an officer or staff NCO leave a unit and not get an end of tour award. You know, from my time in 2-2 or at TBS, even officers or staff NCOs who definitively we're below average or awful still got end of tour awards. And that's where I think the system starts to fall apart a little bit because then we lose the meaning in the Marines that are truly deserving that corporal or Sergeant who maybe really should get two NAMs from one tour. You know, now that's harder to do because we're giving the staff Sergeant or a second Lieutenant a NAM who genuinely does not deserve it. And this, the value is diluted through that process.
1: I, Zach, I, a hundred percent agree. And, uh, I think, kind of ties back into you know, having moral courage to, it, it takes a commander going, no, you know, and I think that's a really hard line to draw in the sand, especially when we, you know, we work with the Navy. So I just came from serving with General Sullivan uh, in Task Force 515. Um, so we obviously did everything with that. That, that. that was our joint task force. But half of our staff was Navy officers, some reserve, some active. And it is the standard across the Navy if you are an O4 or higher and you do not complete that tour with an MSM or at least a Navy comm, then no. Like a NAM is is, is below average. So th- the work that Navy lieutenants were putting in far exceeded some lieutenant commanders. And then lieutenant commanders continued to get MSMs and the Navy lieutenants would get Navy comms. And that's just part of Navy culture. And I I think that's not for us to change, but it's it's hard to look at our own policies internally and say, hey, we need to do this when sister services do it a little bit different. Also different as you get seniority as a commander to go against
3: the grain. We really, uh, I think culturally as a Marine Corps have an issue with uh, wanting to tell comforting lies as opposed to a hard truth. Like you can, uh, you know, have... Uh, several times in my career, I had a Marine that was, uh, you know, not performing up to standard or was just going down the wrong path. And sometimes, uh, depending on that person, in- person's individual personality, you got to sit them down and say like, hey, look, man, you are terrible at your job. Uh, you are not performing the way you're supposed to be performing. Here's what you need to do to, to be better. Here's Corporal so-and-so. He's now going to be, you know, basically in your pocket every day to make sure that you get developed. Uh, And that's not a Marine I'd be presenting a NAM to uh, out on that exercise. You know, like you have to have uh, the courage to both give Marines awards when they deserve them and then also tell Marines that they're not good at what they're doing. It's
1: a great point, Sean. And Dave, you've mentioned in a couple of your other podcasts, you know, tying everything back to leadership. We do a very good job. Yes, this is a biased opinion, having all of us been SBCs here, <laughs> of creating the lieutenant as, as good a product as we can create to get out to the fleet Marine Force. But where we fall short is that we inflate them, that their, their NCOs, their leaders are going to be outstanding Marines. And we know that's not the case. Like the institution is not all alpha males and females. They are not all top third performers. There will be some struggles and we do not do a good job of setting their expectations correct when they get to the fleet and they expect their entire platoon to run 300 PFTs. Joe, you got something on that?
3: He's scowling very
2: slightly right now.
0: So. <laughs> For listeners who can't see, Joe is Joe has a scowl right now. <laughs> I mean,
2: There's so, so much the, the unpack there. I, I guess <laughs> what, I, what I really want to focus on, I mean, we we're talking about General Furness's specific episode in awards and we just brought up the lieutenants checking the fleet. I think one, one thing that, he captured to get away from the awards discussion that has resonated with me for years. I heard him say it in person, uh, the second Marine division again, uh, when I was at TBS and he came to speak to a graduating class, he he said, there's three things that you need to do, uh, when you check into the fleet, um, specifically as, as Lieutenant, it was actually general Rollins that gave him the, the advice. And it's the first was you need to be good at your job. Your subject matter expertise is a coin of the realm. You need to be physically fit and you need to take care of your Marines. The awards discussion here is just a byproduct uh, of taking care of your Marines. And as General Offer will put it, you know, taking care of your Marines is touching their soul. It may be back to Major Dudley's point where sitting a Marine down and touching their soul is being the first person in their Marine Corps career up to that point and tell them like, hey, you're not doing a good job. Like these are the expectations that are laid out for you and you're not meeting them. Taking care of Marines doesn't mean you know doing doing the things for them that they want. In a lot of cases, that may be you know writing an award that they might not be deserving. So I think there's there's a lot in this discussion to unpack other than uh, just awards or uh, Marine Corps policy. And it boils back to Steve's point: it's it's all about leadership.
1: Yeah, Joe. When you when you mentioned you know touching their souls, you know again going back to the second episode of General Furness, when he talks about the amount of time he spent in command, and you asked the proverbial question, you know how do you touch one's souls? And he, he mentions the time demand and just to be so invested into learning everyone and their background that it also comes to a detriment to your own family and your own Absolutely. readiness. And that this, this thing we throw around called work-life balance that none of us actually ever achieve or master, but it sounds good and it briefs well. But to, to get to your point, Joe, to, to truly get to that, it costs a significant amount of time, capital and investment. And then just building that level of, dedication to get to that point. I think that's the, that's the key because once you get there, I think awards, sitting him down kneecap to kneecap, you're not quite meeting the stuff or you're crushing it. I think the rest of that kind of falls in line.
2: Yeah. And I don't, I don't at least in my limited experience so far in the Marine Corps, I'm observing senior leaders. In the Marine Corps. I don't know if there's a, a work-life balance, right? I think there's just only, there's only rhythms, Right. rhythms in your life as a Marine Corps officer, rhythm as a leader, where you can you know, have decision points throughout your career, where you can change the rhythm to focus more on your family. But I, when you're when you're in command, I mean, it requires everything to do it right. General Hoffer will talk about, or has said many times, I mean, you got to act like it's the last job you're going to ever have. Yeah. And what he's really saying is you got to put 110% effort into being A good commander that may be instead of going to church on Sunday morning with your with your family at the regular zero nine time, you're going to go later because you're going to spend the morning on Sunday talking to Marines in the barracks. Who's in the barracks on Sunday morning? What were they up to Saturday night? Yeah, that's that's where you find the Marine where something's going on in their life. And that one person where you touch their soul can have a tremendous impact across the unit as a whole
4: yeah i mean we were all spcs at tbs in the colonel joel schmidt era and he was the first senior leader i had ever heard say there is no balance the right. marine corps comes first everything else comes second for me which i think we intuitively understood was the position of a lot of successful marine leaders He was just the first person to say that completely candidly when we would do the captain's councils at TBS. And I found that refreshing in a strange way because I I appreciate his honesty. But I think it is, you know, among the hard truths you need to tell yourself as a leader, which is if if you want to be an effective commander, that comes first, Um, you know, which is why it's hard to be in command for a long time. But I thought it was
5: bracing when he said that. And it really changed the way I think about leadership. I, I do I do remember that, Zach. That was an interesting, interesting little talk. And I think, as I've had more experience in the military and more varied, given the you know the recent shift, I heard the term recently down this way that as a military leader, you experience seasons. They called it seasons yeah. of of leadership. and i and I think that's a really good way to put it is, you need to brace your family, you need to brace those you're leading for the various seasons you're going to go through, whether it's deployment, whether it's administrative. I, I right. just thought that was a good way to sum up kind of what we're talking about here.
2: This another, is another way of, of, you know, season a rhythm, and I think it's mm-hmm. just important as a leader to, to identify that so that you can truly be the leader or the commander that your Marines need and, and deserve. Well, that's
3: a, I had a, a friend of mine uh, from college uh, when I was trying to decide which branch of the military to join. He was an enlisted Marine, and you know I'm asking around like, hey, is like is the Marine Corps you know the right one for me? And he's like, well, you just have to understand that uh, the Marine Corps isn't a job; it's another way to live. So I think when we talk about you know work-life balance, like I'm not saying that you've got to be at the office 24 hours a day and not you know spend time with your family. That's not what I'm getting at. It's that, It's a different lifestyle than your typical nine-to-five job. And that's why I think when we look at it through that lens of like, oh, it's a nine-to-five, yeah, not really. And like when you signed up, you probably should have known that.
6: I think something that we all used to tell our platoons at TBS is like, yeah, this isn't a job, it's a profession. And like what the difference between a job and a profession is in the sense that like you said, uh, Major Dudley, Sean, um, (laughs) (laughs) that it's, yeah, it's not a nine to five. It's something that you dedicate your time and your life to at that point in time, because like there are people who really depend on you. And I think understanding and delineating those two things was, is crucial to like taking the next step into leading your Marines.
4: Yeah. But does that paradigm really work moving forward? You know, if we accept the contention that you really cannot have a balance to be an effective marine leader like wh- what does that mean for the future of our force especially at a time where we are having so much trouble retaining you know a lot of our, our top talent and key leaders uh,
1: to go back to to bo's point about seasons and joe's point about rhythms you know the the ebb and flow of, like obviously our time is spc together we were, it was almost like a, a miniature deployment, especially for our warrant officer students who literally PCA there, just kind of went TAD to that course. It was a four-month deployment for them, and that's kind of had how we tried to get them to look at that. But now, Joe, you spent the last eight years as the aide-de-camp, you know, where you were just constantly moving at 1,000 miles an hour. Now you're in EWS. Now you're taking a breather, still studying. We expect you to be the undergrad but you inevitably have more time off now right and then you're getting ready to get married this fall this is your prep time this is your breather that ebb and because as soon as you hit the command then you're you're right back to that grind again you know what i mean so it's a, i think it's about spotting those points in your career where you can go okay i've got a little time i got to maximize the family time now because in a workup in a deployment just just not there
6: one thing i thought of when when you guys both said that is like having different bosses, some who stay like super late at work and like what message that sends to the Marines. Like, am I expected to be here as a, as the next rank higher until 9, 10 PM? Is that the normal? Is that the baseline? And I think there's a balance of showing, like, I really like signposting it. Like, Hey, we're going to stay here late. We're in this season because of X, Y, and Z deployment, workup, whatever. Um, but then also signposting the, like, hey we should leave early today and spend some time with our family because i think having leaders who just constantly push the limit of staying super late at the office never seeing their family like that sends a that sends a different message as well i don't know what your guys' thoughts are that's
1: a great point virginia and i think uh if that's if the leader does not want that to be the standard they need to communicate that so i'll give you an example from a few years back i won't name names um, but i would get Routine emails on the weekends with taskers. So I would do the good, you know, Marine officer thing and I would reply to said name Marine with the tasker. So I took that forward to another unit and I replied back to the senior officer. And I get I immediately get a phone call and they're like, Why are you emailing me right now? Sir, respectfully, I'm just answering your email. He's like, If I need you to do something for me on the weekend, I will call you. Right. Like, you don't need to match my battle rhythm. And I took that moment. And I, I was blown away. And I was like, why have I never thought about that before?
2: But Dave, you know, Dave yeah. just had Major Tom Schumann on on the podcast not too long ago. Uh, he's currently the the OPSO at 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And most people know him because he's got a large online following on Instagram called Killzone. And I appreciate a lot of the things he, he shares. And, and one of them is exactly what you're talking about, Steve, that he shared his initial counselings from his battalion commander. And one of the things that the battalion commander called out was specifically like hey i have a lot of things going on all, all the time and if something comes to my mind it's just natural for me to you know tackle it on right there right then and there and if that's on the weekend and i send you an email that's me that's me forecasting uh so i don't forget it doesn't mean i need you to respond right now or take action i will call or deliberately tell you that this this requires action right now so i don't think it's just it's it's kind of twofold it's not just you know physically communicating it but it's also showing like if yeah. you're the commander and and that is a concern in your unit uh due to the you know the constant deployment cycle etc i mean that's you don't you you can't just communicate you gotta show like it's 16 30 if something can wait you just need to, you need to leave because what's gonna happen guys die, guys are gonna guys and gals are gonna be comfortable leaving the office if they see that their commander's doing this. Yes, I mean, this is
4: something all six of us talked about when we were SPCs, right? Like, how late should we stay? How late should we let the students see us stay? Is it important for us to shut the door or to tell them, you know, hey, I got to go. I I can remember vividly when we were SPCs in Echo and I had, you know, a, a lieutenant in my office at like 2100 on a Friday. And I was thinking to myself, like, am I actually setting a good example? You know, I'd, on on the one hand, I'm I'm showing the like, <laughs> hey, I'm committed to you. I'm here for you at 21 on a Friday. But on the other hand, this marine's going to go to the fleet and think that this is an acceptable thing to do, uh, which is probably not sustainable. So it's something I I look back to like, was I doing the right thing?
2: I think some people would say yes, but a lot. I mean, now I think the answer might be no. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I constantly think about that today. Did as a as a staff platoon commander at the base school, did I like demonstrate and emulate the type of officer? specifically talking about, you know, life rhythms, battle rhythm, etc. Did I emulate that correctly? I mean, I think all of us, how many, I think I see all of your heads nodding north to south. I think we slept in that, in the offices there for three to four times a week, even when we weren't in the field. And I I would, I would argue that's a, that's a product of our environment in the way we were raised in in the fleet. I mean, it was constant, go, 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 check into TBS as instructor, you're living in and out of the field. And I'm, doing my job, I think I'm showing the lieutenants this is what it takes to take care of, of Marines. However, I don't know if, if they took that as, that's how I'm supposed to act in the fleet. Well, this, completely unrelated, I had a lieutenant, I'll remain nameless here, at the end of the POI, specifically, as the, as the end of the six months come to a close, you start you know developing a, a closer relationship, you unveil the mask a little bit as, as the, the uptight staff platoon commander, and one of my lieutenants looked at me as we're talking about, you know, some of the long field events or on the hikes at at zero three in the morning, and said, sir, I, in six months, I don't remember you ever eating or drinking water. And I sat there and paused for a second. And before you know, you know, puffing up my chest and responding, well, that's (laughs) because I'm a captain. I'm, I'm harder than you realize I I looked at him. I said, don't, don't do that. Your Marines should see you eat and drink water. Like that is demonstrating good leadership. And I think yeah. it applies the same with you know, work-life balance, whether it's a rhythm, whether you look at it as seasoned, uh, et cetera.
6: Okay. Well, I was just going to say, we've all had the conversation about like warming layers and how when we went through TBS, like if you wore a warming layer, you were like <laughs> yeah. a horrible officer, you were weak. Um, and I think we all had that deliberate conversation of like we have this gear we should teach them how to use it so that when they go to the fleet they know how to use it and they understand that this is the gear the marine corps gave them and they're expected to teach their marines and i think i remember like that exact shift in our mindset and it was like really hard to show like i'm wearing a warming layer because i'm cold uh, but also trying to tie it into like a leadership lesson
2: steve steve's smiling because he was <laughs> king of the warming layer. <laughs> Honestly, I I, I can't, school. I can't,
5: I can't say as a regular <laughs> attendee of the Captain DePaula and Captain Queen Couch during Lieutenant Mentoring <laughs> sessions, they were setting a phenomenal example for myself included. No, but I, I think that that was, I, I think throughout my time as a, you know, as a junior officer, and even now when someone, when some, when one of my Marines or whoever would come up and ask me like, you know, sir, what are your thoughts on work-life balance, or how do you balance your your personal life? I think it it still causes a very deer in the headlights moment for me because I think it's a question that we all still grapple with as we face new challenges in the military. And I think, you know, it, it's something that you really have to come up with personally, and also be willing to mentor individuals on how to achieve that themselves, and ha- setting a climate where they're willing to discuss personal matters with you to enable them to have that life balance.
4: You know, I think my thinking has really evolved on this because Joe, I think when I was in SBC, I was a lot, you know, we were a lot alike in the sense that I would stay really late. And I thought it was my obligation as a leader. Now, you know, even, you know, in the two years since that time, my thinking has evolved a lot. And, you know, I mentioned at the top of the episode that, you know, I'm the director of the instructor development group at TBS. There's an expectation that I should be working harder than the other captains there to set the example. But today, you know, I I walked out at 1600 and yesterday I was at scouting and patrolling exercise. I was laying in an ambush at midnight last night Um, and I walked out at 16 today and I saw some other instructors that were out there with me last night and I said, guys, you got to go home. Like Chuck, I know you have a, you know, young baby. You got to get out of here while you can because TBS and the Marine Corps, they're going to get their pound of flesh out of you, but you need to be able to set personal boundaries. And to some extent, I think it's a courage thing. You have to have the courage to be able to set those boundaries for yourself because the reason people don't is they're worried how other people will think about them. Um, but it's just an interesting, you know, reflection on how my – even in two years, I, I've really gone kind of a 180
2: on this one. It boils back to that Little White Book, right? One of the, the most important parts of it. And by Little White Book, I mean MCDP-1. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I knew, knew it. It. I I know it. it. I knew it at <laughs> some point. Joe was going to bring up MCDP-1. I knew <laughs> it. it like – you, As a can count, you can, count, you can <laughs> count on me, but I, I'll tell you, it boils down to trust though. There, there's an element of trust that, you know, that same type of conversation you had with one of your subordinates, Zach, was specifically like, yeah, go home, take care of your stuff. But you're also, there's an element of trust that you're expecting them to still get done what needs to get done. And again, it boils back. It's, it's all encompassing. It comes full circle it requires time. It requires you to know your Marines it requires trust that they're going to do the right thing. And then when they're, when they're not doing the right thing, that's when you got to sit them down and have the conversation.
3: Now, now I think this kind of, this kind of goes into something that, uh, you know, a lot of this, uh, working late is not a function of, you know, me just staying at the office because, uh, like I don't want to come back to my house. It's because, the number of requirements uh, have stacked up to a point where, in order to meet that intent, like you're talking about, Joe, you know, the you got to get it get it done somehow, some way. Uh, and so I think it, uh, as Marines, we like to have the do more with less mentality, but do more with less eventually just becomes do less, right? And that do less is going to happen somewhere in that equation. It's it's a zero sum game, you know. So like, there's if you keep adding requirements to specific billets or specific people. Expect that person to probably be there late at night if they're if you think their work life balance is out of whack, maybe you should look at what the requirements are.
1: So th- this is a double edged sword because we talk about balance and Zach, you know, your your kind of paradigm shift in thinking about you know how you approach your if your first SBC tour to kind of how you see it now developing these new instructors. But we were ruthless with each other and enforcing exacting standards. Like we would expect everyone here to. Qual as much as you can, learn as much as you can, especially if you're a TBS instructor who's not from a combat arms background, you are a step behind your combat arms peers stepping in the door. So it takes a large amount of effort and dedication to learn maneuver warfare again, because you're years removed from TBS as a student and to do it good and to do it well and to teach it well, it, it takes a level of dedication. So we were always very good with each other about just holding each other accountable to that. So again, the double-edged sword here is, yes, I want you to have balance and get out of here to go see your family. But that is only if, you know, during the normal hours, you have put forth every little bit of effort you could to make yourself a little bit better. If you're, for lack of a better term, bullshitting around the office or not doing much, then maybe your ass needs to stay late to actually not just, you know, stay on par with your peers, but to catch them.
4: Yeah, I mean, if I could go back to talk to my second lieutenant self, you know, we had... Who can stay longest at the office competitions when i was a rifle platoon commander and i didn't know it was happening at the time but in hindsight that's absolutely what we were doing so i think you know to any to any leaders listening to this i think you need to ask yourself am i staying late because of performativity i want people to see me staying late there's the cachet that goes along being the hard worker or am i actually accomplishing meaningful tasks if it's the latter fantastic if it's the former and you're just being performative, I think that's a a form of a leadership failure.
6: I totally agree. I feel like, actually, Lieutenant Colonel Murray was the one who told me that. He always said, like, sometimes our organization is still the organization that prides the person whose car is in the parking lot last. And I think getting away from that mindset of like, hey, you can be efficient and accomplish your work before 1700, and that makes you just as hard of a worker honestly, a harder worker than someone who takes a two-hour lunch break and is chit-chatting all day with people, but they're staying there until 18, 19, saying how late they work. But to me, it's just like, we don't measure in that way. I think a lot of times we measure by the hours you spend here. And I don't know how to fix that.
2: I think it just it boils back down to the culture. As leaders, I think the output from this conversation is you got to establish a culture. You know, I pride myself in and being all of your peers at TBS as SBCs together, because I think we established a culture with a ruthless pursuit of excellence in everything we do. I don't know if we apply that in all aspects of our life. I think what we could have learned from that is that just doesn't carry on at work. That's also outside of work as well. And it's our job as leaders to foster that in our, in our unit. And it starts with a ruthless pursuit in everything you do.
0: So let me ask you guys a question about hypothetical future command. You are a company commander and you've got, I'm just going to say four lieutenants, right? XO, three platoon commanders. And it's sometime in the morning, just say 08, and you're sitting down with your three platoon commanders and you say, what are you three doing today? And your is in there. And you make each one of them tell you what they're doing for the day and when they think they're going to be done. First platoon commander says, hey, sir, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and this. And I think I'm going to be done by 1630. And that's when I'm going to secure my platoon. And then... You say, great, okay. And then 1730 rolls around and that lieutenant is still there and that platoon is still working. Leadership failure or hard worker? So it, it depends on the circumstances,
1: right? So it's just. Sure, again, but
0: that's, you could give me a little bit of artistic license. <laughs> yeah, here. So, you know. like, so like <laughs>
1: engaged leadership in the sense of, you know, he hey, is this is, is this a learning teaching moment? Like, hey, you know, that the timeline you briefed, the task you wanted to accomplish, was it realistic? If you knew it wasn't realistic and you expect them to stay late, like hey, it's probably a teaching moment, or right. if something just kind of came out of left field and you know was an unregistered requirement that kind of popped up, maybe you're adapting to that. Or there's always a side of hey, are they just being very proactive with leaning into the next day's planning? Um, but again, another teachable moment. Maybe your entire platoon doesn't need to be here for that. Again, so it just kind of depends.
2: I, I think a lot about this as as I'm preparing to go back to fleet as, as a company commander here uh this spring and i would look at that as just a you know especially with a young platoon commander or second as a learning moment especially if you're going to take the time to have them in your office and and brief and have them brief you what they're going to do that day and turns out to be something wildly different it's just probably a moment where you pull them pull them aside and hey what happened but you told me you're going to be done at 16 30 and it's i'm not saying it's a Good thing or a bad thing. I'm just I'm just curious and allow them to to speak through their their problems. And I think it would allow you to get to know that commander, that young platoon commander more and what they're what they're working through throughout the day.
4: Yeah, I think context matters a lot here um, as a SPC at TBS would not hesitate to keep the platoon as late as it took to meet the standard. In the that's example crazy. that we cited here of the FMF, I would say that that's a leadership failure. Uh, I'd, I'd come down on that side pretty definitively. And I would, again, cite General Furness, where he said, or I think he was relating a story told to him Marines are not training aides. So I think we just need to be careful about how much do we let the lieutenant fail to manage a timeline at the expense of the Marines. Happens one time, that's a conversation happens another time, I think that's a that's a different scenario. That's a leadership failure because we should not have the junior enlisted Marines feel the pain for the officer's failure to plan. So I, I do think that, you know, I'd come down pretty hard on that in the fleet.
0: That's what I was kind of thinking I was going to hear from somebody when I asked that question because I could ask the question different too. I'll put a civilian spin on it. Again, somebody here is going to have to give me a little artistic license, Steve. Okay. But um <laughs> If, if we paid Marines on an hourly basis, right, they get paid 25 bucks an hour, whatever it is. And for every hour over eight hours, you had to pay them overtime, time and a half. How efficient would your eight hours be with those Marines?
5: You de- you definitely have a highly efficient eight hours. And also, I'm willing to yep. join that Marine Corps that has paid <laughs> like
0: that. <laughs> no, I, no, I get it, I guess. I, I just think about things from a civilian perspective where everything is, Virginia, you kind of said, you, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to say it because you talked about, like, what are we measuring? And you stopped. I was, I was rooting for you to keep going with that because, <laughs> you know, measuring something in the Marine Corps is really hard, right? You either accomplish the mission or you don't. But that's a really gray, it's a fuzzy area, especially in peacetime. And so when there's a difficulty measuring something, you can't measure it. And if you can't measure something, you really have no idea how you're doing. But in the civilian world, we have money that measures everything. And so if you're paying somebody a salary to sit around and they're not efficient, that's a waste of money, they're going to be fired, and they're going to be gone. And um, I don't think there's a way to apply this to the to the Marine Corps or any branch of the service. It's just sort of an interesting way to look at it in terms of the utilization of time, because the Marine Corps doesn't get charged for time, the civilian world does. Like time is a time is an asset that you can measure. And I just wonder if if there was a creative way to look at leadership from the standpoint of efficiency and say, hey, if you said you were going to be done at 1630, and you're not, why? Because one of the answers you might hear is, well, sir, in between briefing you at eight o'clock in the morning and 1630, the first sergeant came down and took five Marines to do this. And da, da, da. And you may actually find out that there there's other friction points in your command that have that you had no idea were going on that were causing an, an uh, inefficiency problem. But At the end of the day, the one thing you can measure is true or false. You said you were going to be done by 1630 and you weren't.
2: You bring a great point out, sir. I think and, and Zach touched on this. It's all about the context, right? If it's an yeah, everyday right. thing. Not that I'm backtracking my, it's backtracking my answer here, but if it's an everyday thing,' that's, I'm going to handle that a lot differently as a company commander as opposed to the one time I bring them in my office. I, I'd be cautious of, of any organization, specifically the Marine Corps, um, if we're going to approach everything like with a, a zero defect mentality, um, specifically with a a young second lieutenant.
4: So this isn't exactly what you asked, but I think it's an interrelated uh, concept, is I think one thing we don't do very well as leaders is set conditions for that efficiency to happen. You know, when I was a rifle platoon commander, my rifle platoon was chaotic. It was the scenario you described. First sergeant needs this roster. He needs it today. Gunny has this task that needs to get done. It has to happen now. The most eye-opening experience I've had in the Marine Corps was being in weapons company 2-2 with now Major Gliwa uh, when he was my company commander he created a company battle rhythm where tuesdays wednesdays and thursdays were prime training days and the office was locked the only people authorized in the office were the xo me co first sergeant and the ops chief master sergeant right platoon commanders platoon sergeants marines they were not authorized in the office unless it was a monday or a friday period they had armory draw at 08 they went off into a training area they had armory turning at 1600 they had MREs for lunch. We did not see them for three days. We we spot checked their training, but it was about setting conditions for efficiency because we can't have an expectation for efficiency, but not create an environment where that's possible. I think that's something that we as leaders need to get better about.
3: Yeah, personnel management is a is a long and dark rabbit hole uh in the Marine Corps, I think. And it's to, to your point about like the first sergeant coming in and like taking five Marines to do what, you know whatever task. Uh, institutionally, we, uh, we run into this, like I went to a logistics captain's career course. So I got a chance to meet some, a lot of army officers and me explained to them that I would lose Marines for six months at a time to go work in the ID center or to go uh, stand extra guard at the, at the gate. That it was like a foreign concept to them. It was like, what, wait, you do that? It's like, yeah, so my my T my TO is actually cut down by like two, three Marines uh, from what, you know, I'm supposedly required to meet my mission essential tasks. uh, And we're farming these Marines out for for other activities. So uh, to Zach's point about uh, setting conditions for efficiency, like institutionally, are we doing that uh, or are we trying to do more with less?
2: That's like it's another great tie back tie-in back into General Furness's episode, specifically with the white letter that came out. I mean, that was mm-hmm. that was part of him assessing an issue within the second marine division. And at his level, now I think looking back and uh, he discussed this, he would have maybe changed the approach a little, but setting the condition for his subordinate commanders to breed efficiency. Obviously, mm-hmm. the and that's removing the discipline aspect. But I mean that that was certainly a huge part of it.
1: Well, Dave, we made it an hour into this podcast without utilizing the words setting conditions or sequencing events, and now you've gotten it twice in five minutes.
0: Sorry, but I did get Joe to call me Dave. So, you know, there's been some success
5: here, right? Finally, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I think I this, whole, this whole conversation reminds me of the, I think I've heard it a million times that someone takes a leadership position of the, hey, we're going to train the task, not the time. We're going to train the task, not the time. And I think we, we love saying that. And I'm not sure institutionally there's a full understanding of what that really means. And I think like we go back to the original scenario, is that a failure of leadership on that lieutenant? Sure. Right. But if we're gonna dig it a little bit deeper, I think it might be a failure of task analysis, right? What actually goes into the task? What are the tasks we're trying to accomplish? What kind of tasks can be stayed until later so that we're really digging at what needs to be accomplished? And I think that's something that a lot of people aren't very good at until later in their careers. And it, it can have it can have snowballing effects.
1: So I'd say for the for the first time in over 18 years, I, I'm finally living this idea of, you know, troop to task, right? because all of you have always experienced and myself included there are always more tasks and you have people to complete it you will always be undermanned under-resourced task saturated but siscom has got a lot of civilian employees a lot of contractors a lot of civilians so gs side and then you know normal contractor side they have specific contracts when they can work when their prime hours are done so I'm, I, for the past two months, I am seeing it in, in true form where there are a large things I'm to do. And we have this idea about what can get accomplished. And based upon what they have, how many tasks they have, things just don't get done. And the, the byproduct of that is things are much, much slower. And then so the Fleet Marine Force is so used to operating at the cyclic pace of just we will rinse, repeat, get it done. We'll fit everything in, all this annual training in more hours in the day then we'll have to get it done. But we will find a way to win. We'll find a way for mission accomplishment. But that's why the acquisitions is a bit slower, right? Because we are forced to, we are actually held to a standard, looks like law, right? About how to procure things, how to pay for things. And then now I have a workforce that is not uniform principally. So they operate on different rules. So now it's about, proficiency and efficiency in a time allotted to me versus the oh John can stay a couple extra hours. No John can't because John's under contract to not do that. So that's it's a different learning for that I'm kind of experiencing now. Yeah, like that, that's the
0: paid by the hour thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're you're living it. And just like you said, it's a it's a totally, totally different situation. This has been an interesting conversation because we've we've said a couple of things Repeatedly, we've talked about touching people's souls and and caring about them and and leadership takes time. And then we finally got around to setting the conditions for success. (laughs) But I'm going to bring it back to that word caring. So somebody tell me what you think when you say I care about the Marines, what is their interpretation of that word? What do you think they care about you caring about as a leader?
4: So I think for the average young officer, they conceive of caring as comforts they conceive of it as are my marines you know provisioned adequately are they getting enough sleep is the operational tempo too fast do i need to slow things down and i think it's not really until you have a little time under your belt in the fleet where you realize that that's not the right way to conceive of caring for your marines from my perspective as an officer caring for your marines means maximizing the probability that they will not die in combat which in the course of doing that may involve some pretty hard things. But if you're not thinking about that, who else is? Because ideally we have a staff and NCO or a set of staff and COs that are thinking a lot about the, the building, the provisioning, but who's thinking about making sure they don't die in combat? In my view, that has to be the role of the
1: company-grade officer.
0: I'm going to come back to that when we talk about retention by the way, Zach. Mm, mm-hmm, so,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I'm more than a decade removed from being a staff and NCO, but I'll say what Marines care about, Marines, what they want their leaders to care about, they want them to be empathetic. They want them to understand them. Every Marine from uh, many different walks of life are going to act different to adversity, are going to have different family stressors in their lives. And they want somebody who can be empathetic and can understand them and can adapt to them. I think that's one of the hardest things about leadership is being adaptive to your personality, right? It's the difference between management and leadership. You have to do what I say that because I'm a captain and you're a sergeant. It should never, ever come to that. You should want to work together. And in order to cultivate that relationship, that person has to feel like they matter and that you actually care about their well-being. Sometimes that may mean comfort. Oftentimes it should not mean that. And I think it takes Marines a few years to realize that. When they grow up and get promoted, and now they're responsible for other people, they've realized, to Zach's point, that there's more to it than the creature comforts of, let's get off early, or please let me go on leave, things like that.
6: As soon as you asked that question, sir, I had this uh, image in my head of one of my twice awarded PFCs uh, saying, troop welfare, ma'am, troop welfare. And that was like, his (laughs) quote. Um, And I think it's just like what you guys said, uh, like the creature comforts, I think is- what some of the examples would be, but I also think everyone joins the Marine Corps to be developed into a better version of themselves. And I think that's really hard to do as leaders. And it's also hard to take the time to reflect and see like, hey, am I actually helping develop these people, accomplish their goals or become better uh, people or become better Marines or a better FDC Marine or fill in the blank. Um, but I think the development piece is something that we don't often talk about, but I think every single person joins the military to grow and develop. And I think that's taking care of Marines. But I think it's also one of the hardest things to do.
2: Yeah, I think, or I mean, not to jump into retention, but it, I think it just immediately brings up the, the question or why are why do people join the Marine Corps? I think that's what McCrick is trying to answer right now in today's society. Why, what person... Wants to join the Marine Corps, and why? Why do they want to join the Marine Corps?
4: Yeah, I have to go back to my my secret general officer crush, General Furness. Here, I, th- I think people join the <laughs> Marine Corps. It's not a secret, Zach. It's not a secret. Yeah, I've been pretty public about it. Um, he's pr- he's listening. To this like, who is this guy? Um,
0: <laughs> he's probably going to send you a coin in the mail. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
2: no, he's gonna, he's, got, he's honestly just going to say you're a weirdo.
4: Yeah, um, uh, that would be crushing. Um, but but I think people. <laughs> People join because they want to challenge, right? Why Why else on earth would you join the Marine Corps? Um, you know, my old comedy commander, Stu was said it best. like People do not join the Marine Corps to play Xbox in their barracks room. No. They do that because we as leaders fail to provide challenging training. But that's what they want, right? They, they didn't join to play Xbox in their room. So I think you know the retention failure is fundamentally a leadership <laughs> failure. We are not setting conditions or putting in the forethought to create this challenging training environment that they wanted to. And and, and fundamentally, I think it also goes back to creativity. We're not going to have all the money in the world to do this incredibly complex dynamic live fire training, but how can we exercise some creativity to challenge them nevertheless, despite those material constraints?
3: Well, I also think, uh, since we're, since we're on retention now, uh, it seems there's, uh, Marines should, uh, you know, there was all that old poster, uh, we don't promise you a rose garden. I love that poster because uh, what I think about when I when I see that is Marines join the Marine Corps to expect adventure and tough, realistic training and or deployment opportunities. That's that's why you join the Marine Corps, at least in, in my opinion. And then when they come out of the field or when they come back from a deployment, they're going back to a barracks that's been there since 1964. The hot water works 75% of the time, or they're, you know, we've, we've all seen it at every single base we've been at, you know, there's like all of a sudden some catastrophe where, oh my gosh, get everyone out of the barracks. Okay. Now they can go back in or like mold remediate, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Right. We overlook the impact that that has downstream because, you know, even that Marine who serves his four years, honorably gets out uh, and he's back out in the civilian populace. Now, like that person is a potential recruiter for the Marine Corps. And so if they go there, go out there in the world and they say, like, oh, man, don't join the Marine Corps. Like I only had hot water in my room like three or four days a week, you know, and they just start listing off all these things. Someone from the outside who hasn't had any military exposure yet is going to be like, oh, man, that sounds that sounds bad. Like maybe I should go go to the Air Force or the National Guard. Right. Beau? But that's what I think uh, we're not looking at is that second, third order effect of individuals like even though they're they're doing good, they serve honorably, they do their job, they get out. Like these are the things that they might be passing on to the civilian populace that's steering people away from the Marine Corps.
0: Yeah, how many times have we heard like the Air Force has these great air conditioning CP, you know, COCs and they've got the best barracks and they've got, you know, all this great stuff. And that's an interesting topic about both caring and retention, I think. And, I'll, you know, I'll jump in here just for a second. But that point about everybody who's a recruiter, and Joe, you said, you know, why do people join the Marine Corps? And that's what McRick is trying to struggle with right now. And I think Mickrick will tell you that, that there's not... Any one reason that somebody joins the Marine Corps, they think that there's 11, right? And they have those little benefit Mm -hmm. tags or whatever they're called. I was never on recruiting duty, but you know, you know what they are. And there's, you know, the challenge, pride of belonging, physical fitness, and then a couple other ones that didn't really resonate with me personally. But I mean, I remember seeing those and thinking, here are 11 reasons I'm not joining for all 11 reasons. There's a couple here that resonate with me, but those 11 are going to capture pretty much 99% of why everybody joins the Marine Corps. But I think. When they do join the Marine Corps, Steve, I think it was you that said, like, then they've got to be made to feel like they really matter.
2: You can foster that in a unit. It's difficult, it's easier said than done. And I think part of the problem right now that Mick Rick is is facing is obviously recruiting writ large across the country. And the Marine Corps' answer to that, or what there's significant discussion and research into, is okay, so if we want to mature the force, professionalize the force, and it's tougher to recruit an individual off the streets. We need to start retaining people in our force, and it's yeah. got to be the it's got to be the right people. And uh, Zach can probably talk to this even more. He's 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 still at TBS, but I think one of the most beautiful things that I observed uh, during my time at TBS was the NCO Corps at TBS, specifically those that taught alongside the captain, staff, platoon commander with the platoons, because you could see their growth more than even the lieutenants within six months. And a lot of those guys and gals are the same individuals that are staying in our core. And I, I sit here and reflect on it today. W- why is that? Because the individual, that sergeant that I had in the beginning of the PY is a different sergeant when he goes back to the Fleet Marine Force or on another, another B-billet. I think the reason is is because they were challenged. They were trusted to teach, coach, mentor second lieutenants, and be a part of something bigger than themselves. And they saw the impact on on a daily basis. Like they they truly felt like they were a part of the team, a part of the culture, and they accepted the fact that if I don't show up every single day, the ones that did it right. If I, if I don't show up every single day and represent what. Is expected of a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps, then I am going to affect negatively forty-two second lieutenants that are going out to the Fleet Marine Force, and I'm yeah. of a few. I mean, Sergeant Dierra was my platoon sergeant, for lack of better terms. For those listening, the impact that he had on those second lieutenants was, in most cases, probably better than I could ever do for those second lieutenants, and because of that, he is a better. NCO, he's a better sergeant, and he's going to have a greater impact when he gets back to the fleet. And I think, I don't want to speak for him, I think he knows that today going back to the Marine Force, and he wants to stay in. Same with the multiple NCOs that are over at TBS that uh, work alongside with Captain Zach Queen over, over at TBS. And the, the impact they have completely transcends why they want to stay in the Marine Corps.
4: Yeah, the the NCO Corps gets less airtime than the captains at TBS. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people talk about TBS captains, but the NCO Corps is absolutely outstanding. But I think to your point, Joe, you talked about challenge. I would really say that it's the closely related opportunity. Right. Right. How many sergeants in the Marine Corps have the opportunity to lead a live fire platoon, reinforced support of attack
2: with a platoon of 50 lieutenants? And then debrief them and debrief them and have them all sitting there with no taking gear. But a lot of people don't know about this. And obviously I was exposed to it working for General Alfred in the last year, but that's that's the secret sauce of, in what's happening at our schools of infantry right now in the new infantry Marine course. You know, those new newly minted Marines that are leaving boot camp and showing up to be an infantry Marine going to the IMC course, get their instruction every single day from one sergeant. And that sergeant has a significant challenge and impact on the future of the Corps. And those same NCOs are the ones staying in and the ones that are going back to the fleet Marine Force, better trained, more technically tactically proficient, and ready to handle the rigors of the challenge that the future fight poses, you know, a rifle squad being dispersed, distributed, and disaggregated from higher headquarters.
5: I think what Joe what Joe and Zach are talking about is where caring and retention kind of start to overlap because in order to place those qualified people or the people who have potential to be in these instructor billets or be in these challenging billets that help them feel personally rewarded, you know, as a platoon commander, as a company commander, it's incumbent on you to identify those individuals and be a proponent for them. And latch on to them. Right. And latch on to them because a lot of times we, uh, we've we all seen it, we've all had the pleasure of leading Marines by either our lack of knowledge or, you know, just by the circumstances, we lost a good Marine because we were not a proponent for them as effectively as we should have been. And that is where caring and, and retention really overlaps because a good leader who's a proponent for his Marines can get them to those places where they tr- feel truly fulfilled by the profession. Well said, Bo.
1: To Zach's point about opportunity, I think TBS is kind of an easy button because there's such a plethora of NCOs to be hand-selected be put in front of those lieutenants there are still a large number that are not getting that opportunity for one reason or another but let's take this to second maintenance battalion in camp lejeune you know one of the largest battalions in the marine corps and you've got a young maintainer regardless of the background and and that young marine is turning wrenches and calibrating things hours upon hours and there are more service requests and they can process more things are coming in they're just not making a dent in the amount of work they have to do how do you give that young corporal opportunity to feed that desire because that person who's building that proficiency, we we tell him every day, you are a marine, for you are a rifleman. Every marine's a rifleman. Here's a mission to the marine Corps rifle squad, but that marine never gets the opportunity until the you know the his list comes calling to pull him for an SDA, but they want to seek out opportunities. But because we're undermanned, under resourced, and task saturated, they never get the opportunity. And that's why they get out.
6: One thing I think that's interesting, I don't know if this is still the case at uh, TBS, Zach, but like TBS for an NCO is not an SDA. Is that correct still? So, like
1: for some of them, that is.
6: Yes. Well, so like the Marine Corps weights these different opportunities. Um, a little bit differently so maybe like that marine who you just gave an example of like he or she could be an instructor at the MOS school but like does the marine corps prioritize that in the same way that we they prioritize sending other instructors to different places so maybe if there was like a different weight that would help encourage the right people
0: Virginia, tell everybody what an SDA is.
6: Special duty assignment. <laughs> you put me on the spot there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so special duty assignment. So Marines are like they earn extra money. There's incentives, and I guess I could be wrong on this, but I think it looks favorably upon uh, promotion, board. promotion board. So well. it's
0: like being on the drill field, Marine Security Card or something like that. Recruiting. Yeah, uh, yeah. The,
1: the the one Virginia's mentioned is uh, so SOI typically School of Infantry. You know becomes you know your mct instructor soi instructor but there are a few enlisted instructors in at tbs that have gone through mckick or marine corps combat instructor course that are qualified and actually get the sda there but it's not a lot of them
2: it's no longer at soi and i i know manpower training command and many of the other equities are are taking a hard look at that as it it can and has proven to affect retention it's a chat. I mean, either either way. I mean, it's easy to sit here on, on this podcast, and I often reflect on this. Listen to a lot of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong's podcast with series of leaders. It's easy to sit here and discuss these things. I think it's it's tremendously hard to actually apply, or at certain levels as a leader or a commander to even see that it's happening and to actually affect it. So what culture are you going to establish where yeah. you know your subordinate leaders, subordinate commanders are, are able to affect this? And again, it boils back to it takes a tremendous amount of time. I,
1: I agree, Joe. I think th- the advice to the young lieutenants out there, or I- even the young NCOs, right, you have a responsibility to manage the proficiency and efficiency of your Marines. And if you can get them operating on a level that exceeds expectations, right? Across the board, right? Where we always talk about the adage, like know the the job of the Marine above you, Marine below you. So we are all interoperable in some way, shape or form. We know that's rarely achieved, but if you can achieve that, right? And that's something as simple as like rotating billets and just providing growth opportunities to Zach's point, challenge them, give them the opportunity to grow within their MOS, right? And ideally, outside, but that's another conversation that enables a young leader to go, I can now live without my stud Marine for four to six weeks while they go to this course, right? That is not normal other than, you know, one of the PME schools, right? They want to do things that are not that they want to do. They they want to be given opportunities that, that can go do other things to grow themselves. Right. And too oftentimes, you know, we've all been probably placed in that position where it's like, I can't afford to lose that Marine. If you're in that spot, then I would argue that you're probably failing that unit, right? And you are not investing in the other Marines around them to lock shields to the point where now we can afford to lose Sergeant X so they can go do that thing because that's going to help keep that person in the Marine Corps.
6: I totally agree. Like how many times the unit can't afford to let that Marine go because they're the single point of failure and we've just fail to set up buffers because that really high-performing Marine just keeps getting assigned all these tasks and jobs. And they're the same person who we depend on for GCSS. And we depend on for getting our vehicles tripped out. And they're just the only person who's doing all these things. And it's just the lack of redundancy. I think discourages that Marine because they're responsible for all these things and basically being like, almost punished for it in a way by not being able to take leave or go to courses or whatever it may be. That's
1: a good point, Virginia. We we had a phase mode coming up in four months. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, so with Steve, what you were saying about uh, giving Marines opportunities to go do things, this is something that I talked with uh, our career planner at the control group and saying that we we do a generally poor job of intervening in Marines careers early on, giving them those opportunities early in their careers because it seems like you know we get to... That first first term uh, reenlistment. Right. And so we Marines decide, hey, I'm going to get out. Oh, well, let me let me uh, try and send you to this course. or Let me try and do this. It's like we're, we're always behind the power curve. So instead of, you know, setting that culture of allowing Marines to go do those things from the time they're a, you know, Lance Corporal with now, hey, you've got a basic proficiency of your job. I'm going to send you to go do this course or, you know, go have this experience in the Marine Corps. We always seem to wait until, okay, now we're at the critical juncture where I got to try and convince this Marine to stay in because he's a good Marine. When in reality, I've been neglecting the little actions I could have been taking throughout the last three years that might have already changed his mind a year ago before he even got to that point where he was thinking about needing to reenlist.
2: Absolutely. A a way of looking at it. I mean, now, by law, Marines have to start talking to the career planner about their transition out of the Marine Corps a year out. Yeah. This may be a cynical way to look at, it, but we're losing them to, you know, transition readiness seminar. We're lo- we're losing them to TRS a, a year out. I think, I don't want to misquote here. I think, you know, the common has even brought this up. How is it that our Marines are talking or going to TRS and going a year out before any leader within the chain of command starts talking to them about the opportunities within the Marine Corps before they're already, talking about getting out
0: somebody but somebody said hey if you want to start driving retention start making it a fitness report bullet on a battalion commander's fitness report
2: uh, there's general offer yeah he talks yeah, about that general all the time <laughs> yeah. he talks about it all all the time and that gets to the measurement thing you want to measure something give o5 commanders a mission statement just like recruiting command give them a mission statement that they cannot fail in order and i guarantee to his point it would change the culture within units on how to attack this problem and how to retain means because Marines naturally it's in our culture that we will not fail the mission and that's you know that's how recruiting command looks at it. they have a mission statement and they have to execute that mission.
0: Yeah, it's the one part of the Marine Corps that really runs like a business because they can measure it.
4: I think to some extent we're we're only analyzing this kind of through one geometry. We, we've talked a lot about with respect to retention, like what can leaders do to increase retention. We talked about you know fit rep bullets. We talked about engagement earlier, engagement often. I think another thing we need to consider is, you know, how does the Marine Corps need to change to counter? our core competitor for retention, which is the civilian sector. We are not immune from changes to the workforce in the civilian sector. Now, there are some things we're not going to be able to do, right? But you know, a lot of the changes induced by COVID-19 in the private workforce, it is creating a grass is greener effect. People look across that fence and say like, hey, there are a lot of perks that now exist in the civilian sector that we don't have in the Marine Corps. So I think there are some policies the Marine Corps needs to consider, right? Um, And I know that with Talent Management 2030, we're getting after some of those things. It just seems like it's happening very slowly. At least I have not been able to see any of the changes on the ground level. But you know, our archetypal approach of we're going to move people around coast to coast every three years, that that paradigm
2: is not going to work moving forward, I think.
1: 100% agree, Zach. The
2: assistant comment, I've talked about that on a recent podcast on and, and changing that paradigm. I think it, like anything, specifically in the Marine Corps, you know, changes changes hard. It's not going to have an immediate effect, but it's incumbent on leaders such as ourselves to embrace those changes, have open and frank discussions like we are today, and figure out find a way to make it happen and apply it to to our units. Whether there's an official policy in writing, as far as I'm concerned, as a young leader in the Marine Corps, the writing's on the wall our senior leaders are talking about it. I mean, it's intent right now. we Now we got to figure out how to apply it.
6: Well, I guess I think there is sometimes a disconnect between like, like talent management was published. Uh, was that almost a year ago at this point, maybe even longer. And like, has anything changed? And like, wh- how do we know that things have changed? Like our promotion boards looking at things differently? Are people's orders being applied in a different way? Like, are they being forced to move? Like, how do we where's the sanity check on that? And like, how do we know that it's not just like a piece of paper and it's actually being implemented? Cause I believe like that stuff's like a, above our control um, right now, at least at this rank. So I guess it's a little bit hard to know and like measure that and get the pulse that it's the way forward.
1: Yeah. I hear you, Virginia. So I, I think to your point, the only thing I've seen codified and, and at least recently was the shift in the uh, e 9 boards and the, the staff and super promotion boards, they are, reallocating the timelines of those boards to coincide with movie seasons and bill selection and things like that. So there's a number of changes happening in theirs. But obviously officers here, like I've always been a little bit jealous of the Army's model of they're not up and out. So they are okay with staff officers being staff officers. And just let's let's be honest, out of, out of everyone that we've ever encountered in our officer careers, not everyone's meant to be a commander. And that's okay. Bingo. And somebody, some some of them that are not meant to be commanders are some of the best planners that I have ever worked with. But maybe they just don't communicate very well, or they just don't like speaking in front of large crowds. But they have minds that can outplan, and the kind of people we need to face an adversary in the uncertain future fight. But we we are still on that model of, well, you're not competitive for command. You know, you didn't see this MEF or that MEF uh, to, to Zach's point. And I think until we change that model, until we Create the culture that it's okay to be a staff officer, and you'll still be promoted up to 06 in some levels, and I guess in, in other levels that you could potentially hit general officer two, not in combat arms. That's okay, and I
3: think the army does a good job of that, and I don't that the Marine
1: Corps currently does not, and it forces a lot of people out. I think
3: there's uh, there's multiple paths you can take. To your point, Steve, right? Like I know specifically for my MOS, you can go to contracting, you can go over to acquisitions. Like there's there's a bunch of different paths to take. But I think we do a poor job uh, in the Marine Corps as marketing those paths to let individuals know, like, hey, if you have a certain billet, that's going to set you up for success to go on this path. Expectations management of how to better manage their career to land where they want to land, and they don't end up in that situation where, oh, well, I missed the key billet, I'm not going to command. Luck and timing, as we would always say, uh, you know, has this massive impact on your career. Uh, and I think it's because we don't manage expectations for younger officers for where they should go. There was, when I first got in the Marine Corps, there was a 3002 MOS roadmap that was put out. I think it was made in like 2009 or something. Uh, and I just checked the other day. It's the exact same document that's currently <laughs> on Manpower's website. So it literally has not been updated uh, since even before I joined the Marine Corps. And it's still the MOS roadmap. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, this does not you know, reflect reality because they've got all these different billets listed in there for each grade. And it's like, well, if I do one of these here, like, it's not going to like leave the window open for some of these other ones. But again, just communicating that is, is I think, our failing as more senior, either more senior company grade officers or junior field grade officers to mentor the younger officers on how they need to manage their careers.
0: Yeah, I'll bet you that roadmap existed back in 1950 when I
2: came in,
1: Sean.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I bet it did, Dave. Yeah.
1: Um... <laughs>
2: Come on, sir. You're not that old. (laughs) Everyone
1: here, except for Dave, I guess, because you know we we just met, knows that my largest point of contention with the institution is how we promote, and I I think it's I think it rubs a lot of the wrong you know people the wrong way. You can have like Joe, Joe DePaula could be the best infantry officer ever, and because he's two years junior to somebody, that person will always be promoted ahead of them until a certain rank where they get forced out of the Marine Corps. He'll never be able to pass them. Recently, there has been some changes to starting at the at the major selection board where you could kind of meritoriously, like kind of relineal number. Yeah, change a little. The, fr- the first year that came out, you know, there was a little asterisk next to some of the, some of the names. And they're like, oh, wow, based on my seniority changed greatly because I'm considered top of my peer group. Well, the people that were not picked for that kind of were like, well, I guess I'm not in the top 10%. And they got out of the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps was like, oh, that's a big mistake. So now they're not telling anybody. So promotion boards are able to, at least the O4 or higher, adjust the, the seniority of the lineal number of someone. Huh. Let's say, you know, we're on the board together, but you commissioned eight months before me. I could be promoted ahead of you based on performance. So that, that's at least possible now. That's a, that's a great step in the right direction, but it still doesn't get over the hump of, you know, I have a young Ivy League educated, you know, Zach Queen, who is an incredible infantry officer, but because he's younger and can probably outperform half of the field grade officers that I've ever worked with in 18 years, he's just always going to be a step behind him. Whereas he goes in the civilian world. And now because of the, the common denominator is money, he can make the most money, he will skip the promotion. It's not about seniority anymore. And I think that's what's most appealing for young officers getting out of the service.
6: What do you guys think about like, like I find myself right now, for example, the zones just shift and I shifted and I'm in zone for major, but like, there's all these things I still want to do as a captain. Like, do you think it's a negative? Like, what if I wanted to stay a captain and not wanted to be promoted hypothetically? Like, how does that, I don't know. Do you think the Marine Corps is ever going to move towards a direction where that's like an okay thing or?
2: There is policy in place. I I don't want to misquote or or misspeak here. I don't know the specifics, but there is an option now specifically for for officers to hold their promotion.
6: Yeah. But then how's that going to be like looked on? Like, do you think I would think of that as pretty negative?
2: Well, in a lot of ways, it's for, for guys and gals that don't have the timing to take command where they would essentially out promote the opportunity to, to, take command manpower and the Marine Corps as a whole is, is taking a look at that. It's pro- the, the problem I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's a problem. I think at our level, when we read about talent management and hear senior leaders talking about talent, talent management, we want to see fit like physical and tangible things changing and happening right now. I'll, I'll be the devil's advocate for the Marine Corps. It's a it's a complex problem. And I know there are, are senior leaders in the Marine Corps aggressively tackling this problem, but they've articulated it's more of a mindset, culture, and intangible shift in the way we do business. And not every individual is going to see it take place or take root immediately, but I can attest it's happening now.
1: Yeah. So to your point, Virginia, I I think currently as it stands, it would be held against you. You have the ability to remove yourself from consideration, right? But then maybe, maybe because you want command or you want a certain billet and you're getting an opportunity, but maybe next year you want to get looked at it. Now on the board, you're a year senior to your peer group that's being briefed on that board and people are going to ask why, you know? So unless they can see formal correspondence or you write a letter to the board and say, hey, here's why I didn't want it last year. I don't think we see it as much on the promotion boards, but I think we definitely see on the command boards, you know, these are men and women at a very different stage in life than we are in close to that 20 year mark, looking at battalion command or regimental command. And they're just like, I don't want to move the family right now. I'll go to the, I'll, I'll be screened for the command board next year. And I think that's even being held against them now, even though, you know, people are saying that it's not, but I think it's about understanding risk. You know, if you as an individual are okay saying, Hey, I, I acknowledge that I will not be promoted this year. But I accept that because I want to do this one thing as a captain or as a major before I promote to lieutenant colonel. If the individual understands that, you know, that has second, third order effects down the road, then I I think it should be widely accepted. But as it stands right now, I think it's absolutely held against you.
4: I was going to say, I I concur with the sentiment about risk. I I think, and to your point, Joe, surely people are working on it. I think we might need to accept just a little more risk. And I'll, I'll highlight, or not highlight, but I'll cite my current command here. I think. Well known that TBS and the Marine Corps, you know, pulls a lot of very talented captains to TBS because they're the center of gravity. They teach the students, not the same attention paid to the majors or some of the field grade officers. To be sure, there are some phenomenal field grade officers at TBS and there are some below average field grade officers. But I think what I see a lot of in my role is very strong captains looking up to a lower performing major above them and saying, well, I could do your job but they don't have the opportunity to. And to your point, Steve, there is nothing that those captains can do to get promoted quicker, to leapfrog a lower performing major. And that is fundamentally frustrating to a lot of people that are hard workers and are high performers. Because to your point, in the private sector, they would simply promote the most capable person, which often is the more experienced person just by dint of their experience, but not always. And I think the Marine Corps needs to do a better job of finding those margin cases where they could retain a lot of people if they gave them the opportunity to fly a little faster
1: yeah at least on the enlisted side you had the ability for meritorious promotions you know like so when i went to recruiter school as a as a relatively senior sergeant a guy i went to recruiter school with left graduated school with me as a sergeant i left for me two years later he was a gunnery sergeant he was twice meritoriously promoted because he crushed it out there now he's going back to the fleet. You could say what you want about his proficiency, but you know I'd, I'd be willing if you could grind for two or three years on recruiting duty, then you probably have what it takes to you know grind in your primary MOS. He is years ahead of his peer group, but those opportunities don't, don't exist for
3: officers. They could though. They could. And that's and that's where it goes back to uh, you know what changes we willing to make for policy because. You know, I'm not saying it has to be as many as the enlisted side. Obviously, that wouldn't even be possible with the, the smaller number uh, of officers that the Marine Corps has. But uh, you could set up some sort of program to reward the top performing Marines to retain some, a lot of that talent uh, simply by allowing them either meritorious promotion. I don't know, like giving every MSC like one at each rank. You know, at least you're dangling the carrot there that it's a possible thing or give them more control. Like, hey, you finish in the top 10 percent based on your fitness reports for your M.O.S., so do you want a billet or do you want a location, right? So now giving them control over, hey, I really want this billet as company command, right? So, hey, that might be in 29 Palms. It might be, uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere. It might be in San Diego. doesn't matter, right? You're going to get that billet. Or, hey, I really want to be in North Carolina because it's close to my family. And, you know, like we've got young kids. We want them to see, be able to see grandma and grandpa. Okay, well, you're going to get a job for whatever your MOS is in North Carolina. You might not like it, And frankly, I don't care, but like you got to pick. You got some control in shaping your destiny uh, and what your career looks like. Because right now, it's it's almost like a coin toss. You get a little bit more control, speaking with the monitors, as you get more senior in rank, but there's only so many billets out there. If you're a really high performer, uh, what are we doing to retain those high performers with the tools that we have at our disposal already?
0: well there's a there's a saying in the artillery community
3: Virginia I know you know
0: it we talk about keeping our powder dry at the at the hour and 45 minute mark I feel like there's a lot of really great topics that we can keep <laughs> talking about maybe we want to keep our powder dry for the next episode this has been fantastic I'll tell you what I'll wrap it up by just saying this I'm so impressed with the six of you I don't think that my group of friends, we're operating at a level that you guys are operating at when we were captains. The growth and the maturity and the education and how much better the force is now. Like I, I just made the comment on the podcast. Like I've been seeing some of these battalion commanders in action just light years ahead of what I had. And and I'm not disparaging my battalion commanders. I'm just saying this is great. Like We all want to leave it better than we found it. Just really, really impressed with the six of you. This has been such a great conversation. And, and I, hope, I hope some senior people listen to it. I'll make sure one or two listens to it. But I hope they do because... <laughs> One of the things that I think they probably struggle with is over-processed information. And when when six Marines get to sit around and, and talk about things at a level that you all did, at a level of maturity and intellect and as informed as you all are, I think it's pretty impressive. I'm, I'm excited for our next episode. I'm excited for this becoming an, an ongoing series because I think people who listen to it will really, really learn a lot. So thank you all, the six of you, so much for your time tonight. I know it's with sacrifice to your personal time because we're doing this at night. Really appreciate it. If any anybody has any saved rounds or, or last rounds they want to fire off, otherwise we'll we'll wrap up, pick it up next
1: time. So Dave, th- thanks for the opportunity. And Joe, you know, working closely with Dave, you know, as General Offered, you know, was interviewed multiple times. I'm grateful for you putting this together and the. opportunity. So this group here has always been a super tight group. And in again, over 18 years, I've never enjoyed more time than the six months I spent with you all in Echo Company. It has been the highlight of my career, both in and out of combat, and I'm grateful. So, thank you all.
5: I can't. I can still say that even, even over here, even with a different uniform, I do get teased all the time for still saying "we" and "us" when I'm talking about the Marine Corps. So, yeah, it was. <laughs> I do. I do miss that aspect of it. It's been great talking to everybody.
0: Do they let you wear a combat patch on your uh, on your right sleeve? Oh, I got the blue diamond. Blue diamond. <laughs> nice. That's awesome that's awesome all right well look forward to catching up with you guys and for those of you listening we'll be back with another episode of this shortly and everybody this is the hot wash and thanks for tuning in